promises I'm a with promises, promises now I don't know Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 2nd, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Peter, I have a question, not oh. for you, but for the oh. listeners. Uh. Listeners, have you ever wondered what it would be like in a master class with Peter Felicia? Well, I can offer you not one, but two <laughs> learner and low master classes with Peter Felicia that are just waiting for you to sign up and join them. So, Peter, you're getting together at the Broadway Maven and teaching two master cl- uh, two master classes of learner and low. So tell us uh, what's coming up on July 17th and July 18th. Uh, July 11th and July 18th. July 11th and July 18th. Yeah, Yeah, those ones and sevens, they can be tricky. Um, Mm. Yeah, we're simply going to talk about uh, My Fair Lady, the first one, and Camelot, the second, which uh, is going to be timely, given the fact that um, Camelot will still be running. Uh, That is... uh, when that class is happening, uh, but just barely, as we learned this week, it'll be closing. But anyway, uh, the whys, the wherefores, um, how they started, how they stopped, how they began, uh, how they conquered the shows that uh, a lot of people thought couldn't be conquered, how they didn't conquer Camelot or did, as uh, depending on your point of view. But uh, there's no doubt about My Fair Lady. But again, it wasn't an easy thing to have happen. Not at all. As we all uh, have heard, Roger and Hammerstein tried it, and they said it can't be done. Well, <laughs> yes, it could. So we'll talk about that on the 11th and on Camelot on the 18th. And uh, you can take these master classes online. They're $25. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And uh, you can sign up for the Broadway Maven and, Maven and the uh, master classes with Peter there. I encourage everybody to do this. You know, spending a few hours talking with uh, Peter Felicia is something I look forward to every week. You should get in on it as well. <laughs> I read uh, about it, but I wasn't clear. Uh, uh, will there also be a live audience? Uh, yes, on Zoom, but uh, that, that's about it. Oh no, yeah, but it's, I mean it's not no, it's all it's all through Zoom. Right. Yeah, okay. There is no yeah. there's no in person. You can't reach out and touch Felicia. Okay. You know, you have to do that at the theater. You can't do like that. Like you'd want to. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's cool. <laughs> also, that uh wonderful voice you just heard is Michael Portantier. Michael's the theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So it's uh, July 2nd. We are, uh, what? what is the hour clock show in 1776 at, at this point? Nothing? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, they go from, um, I think, the 28th to the 3rd. So, um, so it, it might even be 6, 6, and 1 at this point. It could very well be. Ah, so, yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so our, our live, uh, our, our live <laughs> telecast <Update. laughs> of, of 1776 <laughs> right, now you know. uh, gives us that. But uh, we are going to move forward into Peter's journey into the outdoor theater where Peter got up to uh, the Delacorte Theater in uh, Shakespeare in the Park to see this production of Hamlet. So tell us uh, what you thought about it. 
Uh, it's terrific. It isn't business as usual, I'll tell you, but um, it's really quite good. For one thing, the first scene uh, with the two guards uh, run into the ghost uh, is dropped entirely. And that, I, I, mean, I, I, I hate to criticize Shakespeare on Hamlet. I mean, who am I? But nevertheless, um, when the scene shows up later with the guards come to Hamlet and say, listen, we saw the ghost, um, it makes it more interesting to me because Hamlet could very well think these guys are crazy. I've got to go check it out. Um, the way Shakespeare wrote it, we already know there is a ghost. So I like that very much. I think Kenny Leon did, I imagine, was he who made that suggestion. He's the one who directed and directed superbly. It's a very sure-handed production. Even though it's two hours and 45 minutes long, uh, it doesn't feel it at all, at all. It really just zips along, and I think that's really one of the great achievements of this uh, production. The um, other surprise, though, is that um, there's a good deal of music in it. Uh, the play within a play, The Murder of Gonzago, is uh, indeed um, a, a sequence done to music. It starts with music, too. Um, you get the funeral of uh, King Hamlet, and um, because this is a, a an African-American-oriented production, uh, we have a lot of singing at the funeral. So one could argue that it wouldn't have to be two hours and 45 minutes if we didn't have three songs at the beginning, but nevertheless, there they are. And they're quite good, and they're quite effective um, as musical pieces. So I like that um, quite a bit. There's a nice running joke that Kenny the, uh, Leon put in, and that is that um, every now and then somebody walks in on Gertrude and Claudius kissing, making out as we, uh, boy, that term has really survived, hasn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, so many uh, phrases go out of fashion, but making out, which was, I think, first said in the 50s, is still with us all these years later anyway. Now you know. So, but anyway, it's a running joke and it's kind of fun and it really does indicate the loss. But you know, something occurred to me that has never occurred to me at all. This is my 21st production of Hamlet, going back to the original um, Richard Burton um, famous production back in 1964. Um, but it never occurred to me that when um, uh, Claudius comes in after Polonius has um, spoiler alert, as, uh, Polonius <laughs> has been killed, you know, that he doesn't even think for a minute, what was Polonius doing in your bedroom? What's going on here? You know, that that never occurred to me, but um, somehow it occurred to me um, last night. Well, we have John Douglas Thompson as um, Claudius, so that's always a boon because he's one of our finest actors, and he certainly doesn't disappoint here. And um, Lorraine Toussaint, who you may know from a lot of Law and Order uh, episodes, um, plays Gertrude. She plays it quite well. But of course, any Hamlet is going to do a rest on the shoulders of Hamlet and Ado Blanks and Wood terrific in the part very very natural one of the things that was interesting to me was when he um in the scene where he has the chance to kill claudius uh and he doesn't because he says claudius is praying and therefore uh, god will be on his side and he'll go to heaven i'm not going to do it um this actor really made it sound like rationalization that he knew he was fooling himself that uh, he just did not want to do it for one reason or another so um i thought that was terrific Funny, funny thing happened. I don't know if you know the movie, movies, either one, the one in the 40s or the one in the 80s, To Be or Not To Be. Now, To Be or Not To Be is about um, a troupe of actors who put on Hamlet and uh, the woman playing, um, uh, well, it's a, a famous acting couple, you know. So anyway, um, she has an admirer and um, she wants to have a few minutes with him uh, every night. And so she has arranged that uh, he see the show every night. And when the to be or not to be soliloquy comes on, knowing that uh, the actor playing Hamlet, her husband, is going to be busy, um, come backstage and we can have a few minutes alone together because we know he's going to be busy on stage. We know he's going he can't be able to catch us. I mean, he's doing a soliloquy. And it frustrates uh, Jack Benny in the original and Mel Brooks in the remake that every night this guy gets up just as he says to be and not to be, and he sees him walk out. Um, last night at the Delacourt, the guy starts to be a not to be, and the guy to see sober gets up and walks out and comes in to 
get drinks. He comes back with, with drinks for his girlfriend and uh, a wife. I don't know, a friend. <laughs> but anyway, it was so ironic to actually see this actually happen that somebody walks out onto me and not to be. Um, so, uh, so it's, um, a very, very effective production. It, um, it's always nice to sit out there and, you know, I'm going to be very interested to see what they do with the theater. Yes, indeed. Um, we do have a situation where, um, this is going to be renovated and I, I don't quite know what needs it. I don't know what they're going to do, but of course that's not my, um, um, my bailiwick. So I'm, I'm not going to be too smart about that. Let me also give a shout out to, um, Solia Pfeiffer for Ophelia, who ironically enough was, um, in almost famous earlier, uh, well, last season now. And, um, the very, very nice as Ophelia. Her match season is terrific. And it's so wonderful when you see, uh, a performer who was good in a musical be, uh, good or even better in, in a classic play. Um, it's, it, really uh, quite nice to see that happen that doesn't always turn out to be the case but um greg hildreth is the grave digger is great fun too and the way he handles um uh, skulls uh may not be uh the most ad- advisable way to handle skulls but he uh he gets a good laugh out of it so um really um it's a shame we're only getting one production this summer and i'm very sorry about that i i'm pretty sure that back in the fifties and, and six early sixties, there were three in the summer. I I I think it went down to two in in the late seventies. I may be wrong about the three, but the fact that it's only one um, is another indication, perhaps, uh, that times are tough. We hear about theaters closing, and um, so maybe the public is hurting more than uh, we think. And so as a result, if you do go. And uh, have a wonderful time. Remember, these people uh, wouldn't mind having a check written um, here and there. So, uh, but otherwise, um, I, I do recommend the Hamlet quite a bit. As far as the renovation, I, I, I have to do more research, but I, I'm sure I remember that some years ago, uh, well before the pandemic, there had been plans for a major renovation that was going to include um greatly increasing the number of seats you know um linda was saying that last night and we were looking to see where that could be and of course to the sides there is room but those sides are, are essentially dressing rooms and uh, you know um, they have I a think lake it right was, behind them I, I i think it was going to they were going to build up oh is that right i, I see. think so ah, yes. yeah, okay yeah, yeah, yeah. all right but anyway uh, i believe that is not happening anymore and oh, I uh, see. my my understanding is the renovation is going to be um focus more on the i guess the technical aspects of the theater i see uh, but it will be interesting to see i know of course um Many, many people will miss it uh, next summer when there is none, just as we missed it, just as we missed it during the pandemic. Sure. Sure. It's so great to sit out there with a nice breeze on a nice night. Not granted, not every summer night is nice, but um, it's really something to have that experience. And it's, it's something everybody should have. So on the public theater's website, uh, they talk I have a whole section on the website about the uh, about the renovation, the, the renovation and things like that. I'll put uh, I'll put it in the show notes. But basically, they're uh, the what they're planning to do is accessible and comfort spaces for audiences and artists with disabilities, streamlined ah. backstage operations for improved comfort for the cast and crew, revitalized exterior for more nor revitalized exterior for a more dynamic aesthetic experience (laughs) i don't know i want to keep the raccoons and uh, a focus on resilience and sustainability and lighting improvements so they don't talk about a larger yeah i don't think that's on the table anymore and uh, it's 41 million dollars wow and i don't know if it's included there but i've seen a rendering of the new uh exterior oh (laughs) uh so that's all out there yeah, it is. Uh, the rendering is on the website. I'll put this whole thing in the show notes so anybody interested can uh, take a uh, take a look at that. And they they have all the details here. It's really you know well done on their website. So, uh, Michael, when are you going to go see Hamlet? Oh, I'm not sure. Okay. Huh. All right. So we'll we'll talk about it once again after you go see it. 
But until then, uh, you, Michael, you got over to the Marquee Theater to see Once Upon a One More Time. Peter talked about it last week. So uh, what's your take on this uh, Britney Spears musical? Well, I don't have a lot to add. Uh, after I saw it, a friend asked me what I thought of it, and I and I told him, and then he said something like, "Well, you're not the audience for this show." And I I was like, "You really didn't need to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> I I am well aware of this. <laughs> um, I uh, I did not really like it uh, very much at all." Um, but it's interesting. I think the main reason that I didn't like it was because of the direction, uh, which is by it's the building is director and choreographers Keone and Marie Madrid. Uh, and this is a, a couple who have a lot of credits um, more in, I guess, in film and TV uh than in theater, but uh, they did. Um, they were Drama Desk nominees for their off-Broadway show Beyond Babel, and they're involved in the Broadway-bound, uh, supposedly uh, musical, the Karate Kid musical. They've also worked with Cirque du Soleil, uh, etc. Um, I thought that everyone in this uh, was directed to what i would say what i would describe as overact tremendously and i and i think um that that's something that that has always been a a, a cardinal sin uh to me uh really really just something that i i i personally i do not respond to um and so i, I that i think is the reason why i the main reason why I reacted to it so negatively, it was hard for me to separate um, the direction sometime from the book. Uh, but I think that the book by John Hartmere uh, is really pretty good. I, I, I just objected to the way that so many of the lines were delivered uh, at, you know, at, um, at uh, dialed up to the absolute ultimate degree that one could possibly uh perform and act on stage um i also found it interesting to me the second act of this show was far stronger and i think maybe that's because um that the uh actors started to trust the book a little bit more and, and we're doing a little bit less of the mugging and tremendous overacting um this is uh uh the the main the main concept of this piece which is built around uh songs that were uh performed and recorded by Britney Spears um is that uh there are these fairy tale princesses and they um decide that they're going to take charge of their own stories rather than having them written for them and i think that's a really really interesting concept um it seems to me that there was a little bit of that in another show a recent musical that i really liked between the lines uh but here it's really um it's really hammered home even more and and, and explored further and i think that that's why i like the second act uh, better than the first, because that's when it really got into that concept more and more. Um, so I really, uh, I think that was a smart idea on John Hartmere's part. Uh, and I only wish that um, that this hadn't been directed with a sledgehammer, uh, in my opinion. By the way, uh, there's another credit here, creative, creative consultant David Laveau. How odd, uh, you know, <laughs> um, we haven't, uh, I haven't, heard from him in a while it seems to me but also to to be involved as a creative consultant for something like this uh, maybe he was brought in specifically because these um these other two people keone and marie madrid have limited experience with stage uh works stage shows uh but whatever um i uh i am told that um this show shares five songs with and Juliet, um, uh, and uh, uh, I, I, the one that the one I immediately recognized, which I mentioned last week, is "Oops, I Did It Again." But I'm told that there are four others as well, at least partially shared by both shows. Um, so, isn't that an interesting turn of events? Um, and also, uh, 
the cast, I, I thought, uh, well, I, I mentioned that that general problem with overacting. And the one um, that I think suffered most from that was Justin Guarini, who I've uh, liked very, very much in the Encores production of Paint Your Wagon uh, and, and some other stage things that I've seen him in. But here, um, I, I thought he was just too over the top but i really did get the impression that it was he that he was directed that way uh, and that it had nothing to do with his own instincts uh and his own talents so i think he was ill served here by the uh director directors um cinderella uh is the main uh, uh princess uh, character here i would say and she is played by Briga Helen um and and um, and happily I would say she did not fall prey to the overacting as much as uh, some of the other uh people did um uh, another interesting uh, aspect of this show is that it seems like in recent pr- uh recent takeoffs on Cinderella it seems like the stepsisters <laughs> um have been uh redeemed uh, in some of these shows, I remember in um, the Cinderella, the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella that Douglas Cardabine rewrote, that one of them uh, turned out to be uh, a nice person. <laughs> and here, um, really kind of both of them do uh, eventually. Um, so that's an interesting phenomenon. And uh, I just thought I would mention that. Um, and then uh Finally, uh, of course, I have to mention, uh, because she is truly a comic genius, Jennifer Samard mm-hmm. as the stepmother. Um, she uh, also avoided the overacting thing. And in fact, she did the opposite. She did sort of something similar to what she did in Disaster, the Broadway show Disaster. She underplays so hilariously mm-hmm. um, that the audience absolutely absolutely uh responds to the nth degree and really really adores her um so i loved having her in this show um and uh interesting thing here is that i never noticed this before somebody had mentioned before i saw the show and i absolutely agree she looks very much like angela lansbury (laughs) yeah i i guess that she does have a similar um features i think it's like the jaw and the eyes Uh, the whole face (laughs) yeah yeah but um somehow uh all accented in this maybe by the makeup and the wig i don't know in this production i never really noticed it before but now i never did either no right it's, it's, it's really apparent now yeah but now that i've seen it i can't unsee it <laughs> mm-hmm, that's right. uh anyway uh glad to have her back always and um i suppose that if you are among the target audience uh demographic for this show i i imagine that you will like it a lot more than i did but again my my main objection was the direction um so for whatever that's worth Okay, so that's Once Upon a One More Time at the Marquee Theater, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, you had you uh, went down to the Orpheum Theater, which uh, sort of like uh, the Majestic had a long-running tenant for many, many years, and now has a new tenant, uh, not the Majestic, but the Orpheum, uh, to see the Empire Strips back so uh tell us about this uh star wars parody is it they'll tell us what it is sure but first up you know given that you mentioned the theater um there were reports during the end of the run of stomp that um that theater was in terrible terrible shape and um and worse i'm not going to get into to uh, worse because um, it may have been exaggerated uh, and I don't want to spread any rumors that really weren't true. But anyway, um, they have spent the time, apparently, um, since Stomp closed in January, uh, resuscitating, refurbishing and renovating the theater. So it's quite handsome. So one um, needn't worry about the actual theater itself. Okay, like Michael said just a moment ago, you know, if you're the target audience for this show, you are going to have a wonderful time. But it is the 
damn this conception. I mean, I, it all has to do with the fact that um, whoever put it together assumed that the word um, strikes is close to the word strips. So it's uh, a burlesque show <laughs> to Star Wars. Um, so you get Princess Leia coming out and stripping for a while. Um, now, again, it's very burlesque, meaning the way we know burlesque and gypsy, that um, not everything comes off. So if you're there hoping to see um, certain things, you're not going to really see them. It's um, usually everybody strips down to um, the bare essentials. There are many more women than men, let me point that out. And um, the closest you get to a man uh, being naked is simply um, topless. And that's the end of that. Um, so one thing that you've really got to give credit to these producers for is such a show really could be done on the cheap that you could just get people out there in scanty costumes. You know, even the costumes don't cost that much because there's not much material to them. But the point is that they spent a lot of money on this. Um, I I will just say that one famous character from uh, Star Wars fills up the stage at one point. Uh, hmm. They really they really have um, a, a, an enormous puppet um, blow-up thing um, that uh, nobody expected them to have, I would dare say. And um, it's very, very, very um, nice when you see a show, when you pay a lot of money for a show, and who doesn't when it's uh, a show? I mean, you pay a lot of money for these things. Um, that at least you see some of the money on stage. And they really could have gotten away with so much less. And so my hat's off to them for really doing a nice job in producing it in a first-class manner. And I think that's really significant. So anyway, um, people come on, there's music, um, they take off clothes. Um, I have to say the audience I was with on Saturday night, um, it was a late-night crowd, 9.30, um, and um, I don't know if there's been a lot of drinking, but I'll tell you, these people really, really had a wonderful time. <laughs> there are a million in-jokes um, that occur, and uh, certainly... Uh, Virtually everyone was lost on me, but certainly not on the crowd. And there was a moment where the um, there were two MCs, a, a, a man and a woman. Um, their brother and sister, apparently, at least they said that's the dialogue. And um, the uh, man uh, said, uh, "I've got some trivia questions for you." And uh, boy, there was a guy in the audience who really knew this stuff. I mean, he, he was a real Tony Janicki, Paul Witte type. I mean, he knew <laughs> everything. It was incredible. In fact, the MC even said with astonishment, um, you know, the only person we've had so far who's answered all the questions. In fact, there was even a trick question. And the guy knew it was a trick question and um, parroted back an answer that you would say um, to a, such a trick question to point out the flaw um and i i know where you're going with that and i see in fact truth to tell i have a feeling this is a question that's often brought up about the empire strikes back and uh people um who are in the know know that it's a trick question i got that impression i don't think it was a plant by the way i really don't in fact afterwards um i uh, was walking out and there he was and i said boy you were terrific and he said I first saw Star Wars when I was four, and I was hooked right then and there, and I just <laughs> love it so much. So, so really, if if you know The Empire Strikes Back um, and know it well, I think you're going to have a really terrific time. Okay. You know, I just wanted to comment. Uh, you 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 mentioned the, the renovation of the Orpheum, and we've been talking about the upcoming uh, renovation of the Delacorte, and it's really wonderful that this stuff is happening, especially when we're reading about sure you know what's happening with regional theaters sure pausing uh you know and and etc uh and and times is still tough for a lot of people uh largely because of the pandemic uh but other reasons as well and and so it's we should we shouldn't just take it for granted um when we hear about and see these renovations it's a really wonderful Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. however they come up with the money yeah Anybody hear anything about the palace? No, no. Uh, good question. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's just proceeding. Stuart Lane, uh, who's a part owner, told me that um, was it five or seven shows? Um, I think I think he told me seven um, were interested in coming in there. Um, but again, they're not quite ready. And uh, at least the electronic stuff is all up there um, uh, above where the theater uh, will be. 
and uh, it's pretty impressive. But it can't be much longer, really, when you come right yeah. down to it. I mean, they really seem to be wrapping up. Yeah, that'll be exciting. Uh, it will. People will have some uh, some announcements about that in the fall. That would be great. Mm. All right. So the Empire Strikes Back at the Orpheum strips Theater. Back. Well, uh, strips back. <laughs> yeah. See, they got me there. Yeah. The Empire Strips Back at the Orpheum Theater. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and you can check that out there. Uh, Peter, did you put on your uh, Sunday your, your knickers and go over to uh, the Gatsby Mansion in Central Park? Uh, because you went to go see the Great Gatsby, the immersive show. So uh, tell us about that. You know, it really struck me as an upscale Tony and Tina's wedding. Uh, <laughs> it mm-hmm. really seemed that way to me. That's it, it, It's the same type of vibe um, that you uh, go. A lot of people dressed up. Uh, dressed up in 20s fashion, you know, um, looking like flappers and what have you. So um, some people really, really took it very seriously. But anyway, you go there and um, you can dance to the music. You can do the Charleston, all that kind of stuff. And uh, you um, also, every now and then the action stops and out comes Dick Carraway and out comes uh, Jay Gatsby and out comes uh, all the others. And they narrate the story. And that's what happens. So it's sort of the story interrupted by a party going. And having a good time, because after all, Gatsby was famous for throwing these parties where everybody had such a wonderful time. So that's what it is. And, and it's uh, very effective for its own, um, on its own uh, terms. That said, I would think that um, if you're paying $129 for a ticket, that there would be at least one free drink. But it seems to be a cash bar. So um, maybe you want to come um, after you've had a few um, at home uh, and save some money there. But uh, but I was surprised at that. I would think there would be at least uh, one free drink. But uh, no, that's not the case. So um, so a lot of people were dancing without benefit of um, of having drinks and still had a wonderful time. So uh, so that's what it is. You go from room to room to room to room, and they're very handsomely appointed. I mean, really, you got to give them credit for spending money on the set. Talk about uh, spending money again. Um, the rooms are very handsomely appointed. So this is actually in the hotel on 7th Avenue between 55th and 56th Street. Um, there are two hotels. One is the Hotel Wellington, which is out of business now, I'm sorry to say, but this is the one that still survives. And it's right next door to the entrance of the hotel. You go downstairs and um, and that's where it all happens. So, um, so you know, a lot of people like to be involved in the action. A lot of people don't. Um, I'm sorry to say there aren't enough chairs for people who just want to sit around and, and watch other people dance. Um, I would say that only about 40% of theater goers will be able to sit um, most of the time. And that's, I think, a generous figure, frankly. Uh, so a few chairs uh, wouldn't be a bad idea to um, add to the mix, but uh, because they may very well uh, make a run of it because um, it, it is great fun if you, if you want to go out there and pretend you're in the 20s and you like to do the Charleston. Two questions, Peter. You you said that characters narrate. Uh, do, do, does that mean there's no dialogue, or or do you, or is there dialogue? Um, th- it's mostly narration. Interesting. It really that, is some, yeah, they come out and they tell the story. Uh, it's mostly that. Um, sure, there is interaction, but it really seems to be um, an omniscient narrator situation. Yeah. Gee, that seems like an odd choice to me. Uh, I wonder why they do that. Also, um, you mentioned Tony and Tina's, but given the uh, the social uh, class status of the characters, uh, was it also reminiscent of Tamara? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very good. Yes, Tamara, which used to be the Park Avenue Armory. It was there for a long time, in fact. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's a better analogy. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Um, a much better analogy, because that was on a higher plane. And this is on a higher plane than Tony and Tina's. Nothing against Tony and Tina's, which I adored and went many times way back right. in the late 80s. But, um, but yeah, this is... <laughs> did you really? Oh, how funny. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> there was even a TV special in which uh, they had me appear. I was such a groupie. So, um, <laughs> so, but uh, uh, yeah, this is this is um, different, but same. <laughs> as oxymoronic as that may sound, or moronic for that matter. <laughs> so, no chair, no chairs. Uh, reminds me of uh, um, all all the people talking about how great here lies love is. 
uh, you guys have that on your schedule soon? Yes, yes. And I'm very grateful that they said, do you want to stand or do you want to sit? And right. I made my choice. <laughs> Me too. <Okay. laughs> Me too. I sat at the public and I'm going to sit at the Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Michael, you headed over to 44th Street to see Eric Comstock and Barbara Fasano in Birdland at Birdland. So tell us about this. Yeah, I had not uh, seen and, and heard them in, in a while, uh, which um, no good reason for that, because they really uh, are uh, favorites of mine, uh, this longtime uh, performing married couple. And uh, Eric uh, plays and sings and Barbara sings. Uh, and they had with them, uh, it was just the two of them, plus this really fabulous bass player named Sean Smith, who uh, has played for people like um, Rosemary Clooney and Jerry Mulligan. Uh, so we're talking top flight here. And it was a wonderful uh, hour of uh, mostly uh, great American songbook standards. Um, we got uh, three Rogers and Hart songs, You're Nearer, I Married an Angel, and Where or When. Uh, Rogers and Hammerstein uh, were represented by the Surrey with the fringe on top. Um, Eric did a wonderful little tribute to Sheldon Harnick uh, by uh, playing and singing uh, Now I Have Everything, uh, which he, of course, wrote with Jerry Bach, as well as the title song from She Loves Me. Uh, and uh, he said something interesting. He said that now I have everything never really struck him as a as an especially notable song until he heard um, a performance of it by, of all people, Cannonball Adderley uh, years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, you're familiar with that? Yeah, I know that album. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, so Eric did uh, did a sort of that version of it, and it was really, really wonderful. Um, there was also an um, uh, interesting little curiosity, a song from Beggar's Holiday, mm. uh, the show that Duke Ellington wrote with John Latouche. Uh, and I really have to, that's a score I have to explore more. Maybe that should be revisited at some point. There is a um, type of album. Um, it's, it's, right. it's a very odd album, but it does right. exist, yeah. Okay. And then uh, uh, um, more show tunes, uh, Jerry Herman, Time Heals Everything, and um, Shaman and Whitman, the title song from Some Like It Hot. Uh, so there were lots and lots of uh, musical theater songs, uh, as well as other things. There was a Bruce Springsteen song <laughs> in there just to uh, spice things up, which I guess you could consider, you know, a Broadway song now that he's been on Broadway. <laughs> right. Um, uh so I, I really loved um, being there. They're, they're they're both very very engaging and and extremely talented performers, and uh, it's an example of the kind of program that that goes on at uh, Birdland all the time. Uh, you know, I'm most familiar with the the Monday nights when we have Jim Caruso's cast party, and also that, that tends to be Mondays uh, tends to be when they have Broadway uh, type shows. Uh, but they are, they have great world-class level jazz there. In fact, uh, later that evening, um, at Birdland, there was going to be Robbie Coltrane, uh, and coming up on the 31st, uh, Daniel Reichardt, uh, the original Bob Gaudio in, uh, Jersey Boys and also a veteran of Forbidden Broadway. He's going to be doing one of his shows there. Uh, so it's yet another, uh, place to check out their calendar. Uh, and you might find several things there that you'd really, really like to take in. Um, ironically enough, you mentioned the Cannon Cannonball Adderley, uh, mm. a saxophonist, um, his album of, of Fiddler. It, uh, I ironically enough mentioned it in a column that will run on Tuesday on Master yeah. Broadway because, um, I did a, a, a piece called Remembering Sheldon Harnick. And, um, and it's so interesting that. In that album, he includes Kavala, a song that um, was really shaved to only a few seconds, and Dear Sweet Sewing Machine, which mm. was dropped early on. Mm. But what isn't included on that album is Sunrise Sunset. As mm. many songs as he does from Fiddler, he doesn't do that one. And that, of course, um, has turned out to be the most enduring song 
of uh, Fiddler. I mean, you have not gone to any bar mitzvah, any bat mitzvah, any <laughs> uh, wedding of Sarabody, anything like that. We're in the last almost 60 years where you haven't heard that song played by the orchestra or the band mm. who's uh, uh, at the ceremony. It's really something how that song is really going to be uh, Bach and Harnick's greatest legacy uh, because it's a song that will never die because it has that universal truth. We all see our kids grow up so quickly. The mm. time passes so quickly and it's, it's astonishing to uh, to find out that um, <laughs> suddenly they are little kids and suddenly they're not. So, so, um, but I, I, I'd love to know the story of Cannonball Adelie just like, nah, there's nothing I can do with it or, uh, but that's not that good a song or who knows. But, um, you know, and of course the lyric is what really sells it. Nothing against Jerry Bach, but it's the, it's the lyric um, that really sells the song. And of course, Cannonball Adderley wasn't dealing with lyrics. So maybe that's another reason why he mm. didn't uh, take to it. Who knows? But it is kind of ironic. You know, you would assume that uh, that song would be on any uh, cover album of Fiddler on the Roof. Right. By the way, Josh mm-hmm. Ellis recently reminded us that um, Sheldon uh, some years ago uh, rewrote Mm-hmm. Uh, sunrise sunset for uh, gay couples mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, yes so that 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 was a wonderful thing and oh and by the way uh, eric comstock told a very funny fiddler story that i hadn't heard um he uh mentioned how they had a, a great deal of trouble raising money for the show because of um uh, people thought the the appeal would be limited <laughs> isn't that ironic in, in retrospect uh you know because of the the jewish characters and the subject matter um uh, and so uh eric said that they would do presentations of the of the songs uh at parties and stuff and nobody was opening their wallets and hal prince um <laughs> his line apparently was uh, to everyone was Yes, so I, I know Act One ends with a pogrom and Act Two ends with everybody being thrown out of their homes. But hey, we've got zero Mustel in the show. It's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I, I can't say I heard that either. By the way, um, Sheldon once told me that um, when they did do back his auditions, that he could tell that the audience wasn't really responding, but they responded so well to two songs that that's when they opened their checkbooks. And the two songs were Dear Sweet Sewing Machine and When Messiah Comes, two songs that didn't wind up in the show. But boy, oh, did they play when you were doing a backers audition. They're, they're, they're very different dynamics, you know. So uh, um, so that's what he told me. NPR did a uh, special on remembering Sheldon Harnick, uh, and he talked about uh, lots of stories, including... Lots of uh, interesting stories about Zero Mostel and how oh, sure. yeah. how difficult he was, and uh, that he would change lyrics in matinees oh, if yeah. he felt like he needed to wake up the audience and things like yeah, that. And, yeah, uh, and uh, the difficulty between you know you know reigning zero in. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, listen. So, and it's three separate interviews from 1988, 2004, 2014. I'll put that in the show notes so that our listeners can go over and listen to that. It's so, so good. Uh, it's it's really uh, uh, great interviews with uh, Sheldon Harnick on NPR. Sheldon also said that um, when Zero Mostel left after a year, um, there was a party, of course, and he went up to him and t- thought, well, look, he's been fooling around, but after all, you know, he got us started, so I'll be gracious. And I said, we're going to issue you know even though he, he said i wasn't going to miss him at all because he really was mm-hmm. fooling around with everything but he said you know we're going to miss you and marcel snapped back you're only going to miss the grosses being so high and he said i uh, i never asked him about it i never really saw him um after that to say uh how do you feel about the fact that the show became the longest running show in um longest running music yeah show in broadway history and um yeah without you that we ran six years <laughs> seven years without you um and um so it's a very good point a lot of people really did think it was a star vehicle and yet there's no question that the the show itself became the star hmm. all right so uh next up Michael, you went over to 54 Below to where uh, there was 54 Celebrates the Movie Fame featuring J. Aubrey Jones and more. <laughs> uh, so tell us about this. Yes, my uh, 
friend and sometime colleague Michael Levine. Uh, he really was the mastermind of this because he, he produced, directed, and musical directed oh, it. Great. Um, and it was a lot of fun with a big, large cast, um, uh, including all of the songs from Fame and um, several uh, scenes that were acted by the various people. There, there, there was a lot of young talent on display uh, as befits the the story, the subject matter, uh, the characters. Um, but then all, we also had um, uh, guest appearances by uh, Christine Petty, uh, who played one of the teachers, and uh, Janet Finale, who played uh, one of the mothers, Doris's mother. Um, and uh, a special treat was, uh, well, two special treats. Maureen Tiffey, um was uh, was present uh on video uh she made a video she couldn't attend but she uh she made a, a, a video specifically for this event where she talked about uh playing doris and 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 told stories about the show but uh also present live was laura dean um who's mm. one of the other featured characters in the movie she's the one who uh um where she's told by Joanna Merlin, <laughs> um, uh, the dance teacher who was uh, Joanna Merlin, who played the original title in Fiddler on the Roof. So there's a segue there. Uh, uh, is in the film playing the dance teacher who tells the um, uh, this girl, uh, I forget her name uh, at the moment, but uh, that she is, she is just not cutting it basically, and and she wants to to she doesn't think she should continue in the dance program uh and then there's a, a moment um uh, after that where there's a scene on the subway platform and it's kind of shocking to see <laughs> um what the the subway the Times square subway station looked like in 1980 uh by the way when the when the movie was filmed and it um and she's there with Irene Cara and several of the other students. And we think she's going to jump in front of a train and kill herself because she, uh, you know, because she's been told that she's not good enough, uh, basically. Uh, and then what happens is the train goes by and she's left standing there and everyone is staring at her. And she says uh, something like, so I'll drop out of the uh, dance department, but I'll, I'll, I'll go into drama instead. Um, and, uh, Laura told the story that in the original script that she was supposed to jump and kill wow. herself. Uh, wow. But as she told it, uh, this the, the movie wound up being uh, produced by MGM. And uh, they said, nobody dies in an MGM musical. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh but also I mean, you know, that that may be a flip comment or whatever, but I, I think it was um it would have been a huge mistake to have her kill herself by jumping in front of a train because I don't know how the movie could have recovered uh after that. I mean that's that's a pretty horrendous thing to happen. So I think that was a really, really smart idea. Uh anyway, it was great to have Laura Dean there looking great and um and also sounding great when she led the singing of I Sing the Body Electric, uh, as she does in the film, uh, that, that big, huge final production number. Um, so it was, a, it was a really, really fun night. And uh, uh, I, I had rewatched the movie again recently, and I think it's an actually it's a terrific movie, uh, even if it, it's certainly not photorealistic. You know, I mean, it's not documentary and it's a little exaggerated in some ways and and uh, maybe a tiny bit manipulative <laughs> in certain places. But I, I think overall uh, it was really well written and very well directed by Alan Parker. So it's fun to see that. If it, if it were produced by Disney, they would have killed the parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. That seems to be, you know, you don't want to be a parent in a Disney movie, you know. <laughs> they seem to kill them all off. <laughs> all right. So that was 54 Celebrates the, uh, the Movie Fame. Uh, it was just a limited run on June 26th. But I noticed when I went over to the 54 Below website, it changed from 54below.com to 54below.org. Ah. Now they are making pitches for donations, donations to support uh, 
with their work at 54 Below. So uh, there it is. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, in the news, we have uh, four shows that end their limited run today on Broadway. Leopoldstadt, Prima Facie, Fat Ham, and The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. Uh, what do we think about, uh, I, I think all four of these are going to have an afterlife in regional theater and if not a tour. I, I see, um, subsequent productions for all of them. Absolutely. Uh, and, um, Leopold's that would be the most challenging because of course it does have a mammoth cast, uh, by most standards, but, um, but college such theaters, a good place. Uh, yeah. Well, very URTA, yeah. URTA and Lord theaters. Yeah. Would yeah. End up there. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but in another respect, Prima Facie <laughs> uh, is also going to be very challenging because mm-hmm. unless she keeps doing it, <laughs> Jody Comer, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not going to be easy to find people who can do that. And yet um, that performance where the uh, air was choking her and she stopped and the understudy came on, you know, I didn't hear anything uh, that the understudy didn't know what uh, she was doing. So uh, Good point. So, Good yeah, point. So. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing what, how people rise to the challenge and uh, do these things. So uh, I was delighted yeah. to hear that uh, uh, f- that for a while now it was impossible to get a ticket to Prima Facie, uh, yeah. uh, especially since the the Tony Awards. But you know, and and you might say, well, you know, that that makes sense. But still, I mean. It's a one-person show with a very, very difficult subject matter. So I'm really glad that people responded so well um, to what they had heard about it, you know, and 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 all the great reviews and the awards. And I, I think it's so well deserved. Uh, I'm glad it was such a great, great success for them all. So. Um, yeah, other things in the news this week is we heard the sad news that Alan Arkin passed away at yeah. the age of 89. So, Peter, have you any thoughts? Have you seen him in other things? Well, uh, certainly his two uh, most famous stage appearances, first in Enter Laughing, uh, a 1963 comedy, and um, then uh, Love, L-U-V, a play that was quite, quite popular in its day. Um, it's um, I'm afraid time has passed it by now from the vantage point that um, it does deal with marriage and um, sexuality in a way that uh, seems simplistic and naive now. But back in 1965, when I saw it, frankly, um, Arkin was so phenomenal, so phenomenal that to this day, all these many moons later, I have never seen an actor give a better performance in a featured role in a comedy. Never. Never. And when I come out of the Booth Theater, which is where Love played, there's a, a lamppost there, right uh, 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 where the doors are, a lamppost. And I'm telling you, I still remember coming out of that theater and having to lean against the lamppost because I was laughing so hard it would happen at the end of the show, which involved mm-hmm. Alan Arkin. And people were actually coming out and pointing and saying, look at him, he, he really had a good time. This guy, this kid really liked it. I was a kid. Um, so uh, this kid really liked it. Um, phenomenal. And luckily enough, that performance has been pre- uh, preserved on uh, long playing records at the time. It, that, that was pretty uh, indic- indicative of uh, how successful this play was back then, that um, Alan Arkin, in conjunction with Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson and Mary Cupman, who often acted together and certainly were brilliant in this too, um, actually got Columbia Records to say, come on in and, and do the play. Uh, no, it has not been transferred to CD. I don't know if it's on YouTube or what, but it's very, very funny, even um, if you uh, if you can overlook the fact that some of the comedy is terribly dated. But if you, you can get yourself back into 1965 and find that recording, you will really see how magnificent uh, magnificent beyond belief uh, Alan Arkin was in that show. As for Enter Laughing, his debut, for which he won a Theatre World Award, and uh, Tony, too, um, not incidentally. <laughs> um, it, it, uh, quite, quite uh, funny being an actor, well, a kid who wants to be an actor and isn't any good at it. <laughs> and um, it's it's such a wonderful moment when you finally see the play happening and his parents have come to see the play. And they have had no interest in his doing this at all. They want him to become a druggist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they come and he's terrible. He stinks. He's so awful. And the father says to the mother, what do you think? 
And she says, he's the best one. And it's so nice because, of course, that's the way a mother thinks, you know. Uh, and he was the best one, frankly, in portraying somebody who had to be really goony and silly and inexperienced and just wanted to be in show business so bad. So, And he was so bad. So, uh, But we're led to believe, of course, that this is Carl Reiner's story and that he did wind up having certain success along the way. So, um, so I, I, I treasure those because, um, I don't know if Arkin ever came back to Broadway after that. I can't think of anything. Um, um, I guess it was all film after that, but I'm very lucky to have seen those two way back when. Mm. Michael, anything to add there? He did not come back as a performer. Um, love was his last. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, then he subsequently directed Hale Scrawdyke. <laughs> Funny, I just watched the movie that the other night. 1966 uh, only ran, uh, oh gosh, November 28th through December 3rd. Um, uh, but his next uh, his next directorial effort was a lot more successful, The Sunshine Boys. Uh, I did see that uh, with a replacement cast. Uh, then he directed Molly, which I did not well, see. He took, over, he took over for Molly, to be fair. And um, Kay Bellett, um, who was the star of that, has a very interesting um, take on what happened with that show in her um, memoir, which is also uh, she did an audio book of it and listening to that of what mm. she has to say about that. And she praises Arkin tremendously and feels that if they had more time and money, he would have been able to save the show. Remind me uh, who was the original director, Paul uh, Aaron. Is that his name? Oh, I okay. Think so I think so. Because it just says here, I mean, the only person credited sure, is, is, is yeah. Arkin. And then uh, his last um, directorial effort was taller than a dwarf in 2000. Uh, but he was certainly very, very busy um, in film. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know what he's great in? Uh, Argo. I've never seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he and uh, um, John Goodman are a really great team in that movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's a fantastic movie overall. I think, but Branson's also in it. I've said Victor Garber. Again. Victor Garber, Brian Cranston. Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, and yeah, and Ben Affleck, of course. Um, uh, but it, it's it's great overall. But also the but the the work of John Goodman and uh, Alan Arkin in it is just fantastic. Bob Gunton. Well, yeah. Wow, what so, a cast! Yeah. yeah, what a cast. Who's this Ben Affleck guy? I hear about him a lot. He's catch <laughs> on. If he'd only come to Broadway, we'd know who he is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so all right so that wraps it up for today before we get on to trivia and the musical moment i want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to apple podcasts for you of course you don't have to listen to us in apple podcasts as many ways to get to us you can subscribe to us in patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash broadway radio and sub- and support all the different shows that we have here at broadway radio and in fact if you were a patreon supporter this uh this weekend just yesterday you got the preview of uh of Jan Simpson's latest All the Drama, where she talked about 2014 Pulitzer Prize winner The Flick uh, by Annie Baker. And and uh, I, I did not remember, or maybe I didn't know that The Flick was uh, panned by a lot of people at first, oh, and it won the Pulitzer, yeah. Oh, yeah. and it came back, and she brought on Jeremy Girard uh, to talk about how he panned it, and then changed his tune after it won the Pulitzer. <laughs> so it's a great conversation. Uh, you can get it in the Patreon feed or next week on Saturday. It's going to be available to the public. Uh, also coming up on July 4th on Tuesday is Jan's summer reading list, where we have a discussion with Robert W. Schneider and talk about his book, 50 Key Stage Musicals. Um, and so that's a fun listen on uh, 4th of July, which uh, is a holiday here in the States. <laughs> so, Peter, what do we have in this week's trivia? Well, we first have an answer from last week. Another opening, okay. another show in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore goes one of musical theater's most famous opening numbers. And yet, not every show had an opening in one of those cities. 
what was the first Tony nominated musical that didn't? And what was the first Tony winning musical that didn't? Well, Once Upon a Mattress was the Tony nominated show that first did not try out uh, in any of those cities because it was a transfer from off Broadway. Um, as for the Tony winner, the first one to uh, sue those cities was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh, the 1962 opener that won the 63 Tony because it opened later than um, the, the season cutoff. So they tried out New Haven and Washington, but not Philly, Boston or Baltimore. Uh, Tony Janicki was first, uh, followed by Brigadude, Paul Witte, J. Aubrey Jones, and Sean Logan, and that was it. So this one flummoxed a lot of people, and I imagine this one will too, because let's do a variation on last week's question this week. This one requires three answers. Name the last Tony-winning Best Musical to have re- respectively visited at least one of the tryout cities in Philly, Boston, and Baltimore. What was the last Tony-winning musical to have tried out in Philly? Tried out in Boston and tried out in Baltimore. That's the question for this week. All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, please, please promise me that this is good music this week. (laughs) I think so. Uh, The this year's recipients of the Kennedy Center honors were uh, fairly recently announced. Uh, And I would say, that all five of them have at least some connection to Broadway. Uh, we have Billy Crystal uh, with obvious connections to Broadway. Um, Renee Fleming, who is, of course, primarily an opera singer, but has appeared on Broadway in Carousel. And uh, what was the title of that comedy she was in? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember, yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway. Uh, paper, yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't, didn't last long. Um Barry Gibb, who, uh, if nothing else, uh, has been represented on Broadway with Saturday Night Fever, the musical. Uh, Queen Latifah, who very memorably uh, and very, uh, very uh, proficiently played Mama Morton in the film of Chicago. And then the final recipient is Dionne Warwick, uh, who uh, was really uh, one of the one of the big recording artists of the 60s. And um, even though that was a time when uh, Broadway songs were starting to uh, not not show up in the top 40 as much as they had previously, she was kind of on the uh, on the cusp of of that happening. So so she uh, had, well, uh, you know, two two or three very famous ones uh because she recorded promises promises from that show and also other songs from that show uh 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 and then uh i uh i found um albums uh where she does lots of other broadway tunes as well so our opening music uh, for this week is promises promises and then uh, our closer is where is love uh, from Oliver, which I think a really, really lovely version of that. Uh, uh, so congratulations to Dion Warwick and the other recipients, upcoming recipients of the Kennedy Center Honors. And I hope you enjoy um, her renditions of those two songs. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Will I ever know the sweet hello that's meant for only me? Who can say where he may hide? Must I travel far and wide till I am beside? Someone who I can mean something 
Lo 